Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Uh, uh, my topic tonight is Judaism, Justice, and Holiness. Uh, it's really the theme of my second book, which is called Judaism and Justice. And I want to start by telling you a story. Uh, Shmuley mentioned uh, that uh, for 21 years I founded and led an organization called Panim, and actually I've got two former Panim fellows here, uh, Shana Cohn, married name? Abraham. Abraham, and Leslie Conreich Feldman. I know them when they were younger, before they were married. Uh, we had a Panim. It was a program, those who didn't know about it, it was a program that did a lot of work with uh, mostly high school students, uh, teaching them the nexus between Jewish learning, Jewish wisdom, and social responsibility. Uh, but as we grew, we started doing more work on college campuses, post-college uh, teacher training. We published several curricula. Uh, and our fellowship program was a year of young people right out of college who spent time on our staff. And for Leslie and Shana were punning fellows one year after the other, both from this area and now back here. And we had the pleasure of visiting yesterday when I first came, came in. Uh, so I'm going to tell a Panim story in honor of Leslie and Shana, actually, but it also is a good way uh, into the topic. And by the way, Rav Shmuley was on my staff for several years, which is how we first met. So the typical seminar for our programs that we called Panim al Panim, which means face-to-face, -face, uh, typically had between 60 to 75 high school students, 10th to 12th grade, from anywhere around the country, we would have somewhere between four to six communities at any one time, come in groups of 15 or 20 kids, and they would spend four days in Washington learning about issues ranging from poverty to human rights to war and peace to the environment, whatever else. And we would look at the policy angles of these issues. We look at the Jewish teachings and values and texts that relate to the issues. We would teach them how to be citizen activists, uh, both in terms of advocacy as well as community service. And literally, over the course of 21 years, we educated an entire generation of young Jews into a consciousness that to be Jewish means to walk the talk of prophetic Judaism. And I'm really proud of that. I, I, literally, a week doesn't go by when I don't run into someone who sees me, comes to a lecture of mine, reads something of mine, sends me an email, Facebooks me, and says, I went to Panim Panim 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and it affected the way I lived my life and what I did for a career. And, how I decided to show up as a Jew in my society. And uh, so that's a little part of the legacy. So here's a story from Panim. So one night, I, would, I learned the hard, hard way that uh, I used to stay in the hotel, and I never got a good night's sleep. And since I was running a lot of the seminars, before our staff, staff, staff got larger and I had other people running the seminars, in the early years, I ran all the seminars myself. And I was trying to stay in the hotel, but if you ever stayed in a hotel with 75 high school teenagers, you know you're not going to get a good night's sleep. Uh, not only is it noisy, but you know someone breaks a rule, and you get pulled into it right away. So I got into the habit of 
going home as late as at night to get a good night's sleep, get up really early in the morning, but I prefer to have five solid hours of sleep than interrupt the sleep throughout the night. So one evening comes, to, program comes to an end. I leave the hotel. It's maybe 10.30 at night, about to get into my car driving home. And I walk by an African-American who's doing a jig to music that I can't hear. Just walking down like this, just grooving. Like, I don't hear any music, right? So I say hello to him. He says hello back. I said, are you from around here? He says, yeah, I'm actually the mayor. He didn't look like the mayor to me. Actually, at that time, the mayor was Marion Barry. And actually, I had some interaction with Marion Barry, so I knew this was not Marion Barry. Okay. I said, you're the mayor of what? He said, I'm the mayor of a little village around here. So I got my curiosity up. I said, you want to show me? He said, yeah, come with me. Of course, I fast forward. When I tell my wife the story, she's horrified. Okay, are you out of your mind? The answer is probably yes, but okay. I follow this guy whose name is Jesse. He leaves me about three and a half blocks from the State Plaza Hotel, which is very close to the State Department in the western part of Washington, D.C., to the Federal Reserve Building, which, if you've never been there, is actually right across from the State Department. And sure enough, we get to the Federal Reserve Building, and Jesse gives me a little tour around the building where there are somewhere between 30 to 40 homeless people who are sleeping under the awnings, the overhang of the Federal Reserve Building. And as we walked around, they're saying, Jesse, Mayor, how you doing? He was the mayor of this homeless village, which he had created. Because in those days, which I'm talking about the late 80s, early 90s, among the things that middle-class white kids do for entertainment when they're in college, is they have a few beers and then they beat up homeless people on the street. Happened all the time. This was pastime, okay? And so there's safety in numbers, and so Jesse started gathering around the homeless who were mostly sleeping onto themselves, under a tree, in a doorway, whatever else. He says, let's come together. I've got a little village at a really cool place. And here's what Jesse had figured out. He figured out how to survive in the urban jungle. Because the architecture of the Federal Reserve is such that on the outside, there was a concrete overhang of about six feet, which protected from the rain. And the columns on the outside of the building protected from the wind. And better than that, the night guards, security guards for the State Department, were with an eye shot of the plaza of the Federal Reserve Building. So some of these kids came out of a bar to like kick around a few homeless people for sport. The security guards got involved. So Jesse created a safety community for the homeless in this village. Well, I was amazed. I was amazed because it was, seemed to me that this homeless black male was actually doing something very beautiful, very beautiful. And I got an idea. Next day, I go back in, and I say to my staff, we're changing the program for the evening. I said, let's go out and buy a bunch of bags of bread and peanut butter and jelly. We're going to make sandwiches, and we're going to go visit a homeless village tonight. They're on the spur of the spot. I asked Jesse to meet me back at the State Plaza Hotel at 9.30 at night the next night. I said, would you meet me here? Sure enough, Jesse's there. We actually take all the kids out. We do a little briefing to them, tell them what we're going to be doing. We're going to go out and meet some homeless people. And we're going to, everyone's going to have two or three sandwiches in their knapsack or in their pockets. And they should essentially find a homeless person, share a sandwich, sit down, and start talking. 
And that is how a program began, which we started, we kept doing for, I think it's probably another 17 years, week in, week out, exposing thousands of middle-class Jewish teens to homeless people and all that they deal with. It was quite amazing, eye-opening. For a lot of kids, although they spent a lot of time on the seminars meeting very important people who were shared Senate committees and were running national nonprofits and worked in the White House and they read all these people, for many of them, the biggest impression was made by meeting homeless people and learning a very key teachings that comes out of the Torah out of the first chapter of Genesis, that every human being is made in the image of God. And what does it mean to treat that person in that way? There's a teaching that actually comes from a rabbinic text that says, it is more important, more valuable. It's one who gives a coin to a poor person receives nine blessings, and one who gives a friendly smile to a poor person receives 12. Teaching of the rabbis, that more important than a coin is a friendly face, having a person feel that they are a human being. So we started doing this on a pretty regular basis, and somewhere maybe a few months in, Jesse became our regular guide. He loved it. He loved it because we were bringing not just food, but also humanity to his people. One night, Jesse says, would it be okay for me to take your young people? And he knew they were Jewish. He knew I was a rabbi. Would it be okay if I take these people and prayed with them? I said, sure. I didn't ask him for what his text was, what liturgy he was going to come from. Sure. So at the end of the evening, after the kids had all spent you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes with homeless people, giving them sandwiches. Jesse got everyone around in the plaza of the Federal Reserve Building. Think of the irony here, by the way. You're getting this like 30, 40 homeless people under the building that controls all the money flow in America. I mean, are you appreciating the irony? I hope you're getting all the levels of the story, okay? Jesse brings everyone together in the plaza of the Federal Reserve Building and invites everyone to hold hands. He closes his eyes and offers the following prayer, not from any liturgical canon, but from his heart. He says, God, thank you for bringing these lovely young people to my friends. He says, they bring food, they bring support, they bring love. And in their being here just one night of their visit, they provide for us everything that we would ever need. It was powerful. It was powerful. This was the prayer of Jesse's heart. And it touched the kids very deeply. I said to the kids later that night, I said, you know, Jesse probably has never held a Jewish prayer book in his life. I said, the prayer he offers actually from the morning Birchot HaShachar, okay, where we say, Thank you, God, ruler of the universe, who provides for all of my needs. It's right out of our prayer book. Jesse gave it his own version of it from himself, okay? What hit me that time is there's a teaching from the Talmud that says, It means a person cannot learn anything until their heart is properly oriented to the matter. The rabbis understanding that learning starts first in the heart and only then enters the head. From then on, we started calling that program Street Torah. Because that hour, hour 50 minutes with homeless people at the Federal Reserve taught these Jewish teenagers more about Torah than all the years of their religious school, 
day school, yeshiva training taught them in some. It was real Torah. I tell that story because in many ways it reflects how it is that we kind of understand what our job is if we care about this thing called Judaism. What is our job? I started asking a question probably 20 years ago to audiences I spoke to. And there's questions that always made people perplexed. And it actually didn't matter whether the audience I had in front of me was a knowledgeable Jewish audience or an audience that was not all that literate in Jewish matters. And I asked the question, what is the purpose of Judaism? What is the purpose of Judaism? Now, if I ask you that question, I want you to think for a moment to think how you would answer it. What is the purpose of Judaism? And the reason it was so troubling to people, especially to people who knew a lot about Judaism, is that most of our Jewish educational system is very good at providing answers to the question, what is Judaism? But very poor at answering the question, why is Judaism? What are we doing it all for? It's no big deal if someone can recite to me, oh, I can mention, I can rattle off five Jewish holidays, and I know 20 Hebrew words, and I've learned 14 Jewish songs. Why? Why? What's it all for? And I start my book, Judaism and Justice, the first chapter of Judaism and Justice starts with a chapter called, What is the Purpose of Judaism? And I answer with two words. And the rest of this presentation tonight is actually my midrash in those two words. So let me start at the beginning and where those two words come from. The two words are tzedek, which means justice, and kiddushah, which for the time being will translate as holiness, but I think it's inadequate. You'll see why. Each of those words is rooted in a core text from the Torah. And it's important to root those words in those texts. So where does the word tzedek come from? Genesis chapter 18. It is the first encounter, the first meaningful encounter, between Abraham, the first Jew, and God. And the interaction reminds me, there are folks in this room that are at least my age, or thereabouts, how many people remember the old TV show, Mission Impossible? Not enough? Okay, a lot of it. Okay, that's not bad. I'm not talking about the movie with Tom Cruise. That's way later. That's a fake, okay? The real show with Peter Graves. That's the one, right? Okay, now we go. Okay. Now, how did that show start? That show started with Peter Graves going into a phone booth, which is dates it right, right there, right? Where do you find a phone booth these days, okay? And he would press down a button, and it would start, your mission, Mr. Phelps, should you decide to accept, is. And then the voice. Think about this. This is, this is now totally from Genesis chapter 1, okay? A disembodied voice speaks to his chosen agent on earth and shares with that agent a tremendous problem which, if it's not solved, could lead to the end of the world. And in the TV show, after the disembodied voice shares what the problem is. Peter Graves, who's the lead of the team, goes through a portfolio like this, and he chooses which people on his team he'll need to solve the problem that week, okay? So there was a cast of maybe 10 or so folks. He would choose three or four, and they would be starring in that week's episode, then cut to commercial, and then back to the episode. Genesis chapter 18 is that exact scene. 
God says to Abraham, Abraham, I have a mission for you. Should you decide to accept, it's implicit. This is the first covenant with the Jewish people. And he says to Abraham three Hebrew words, which is actually the disembodied voice sharing the mission of Judaism, the first and primary purpose of Judaism. It says, Abraham, your mission in the world is lasot tzedakah umishpat. Three words is the entire Torah. It's said right there in Genesis 18. And what it means literally, and then I'll expand the definition, is to do righteousness and justice. Lasot tzedakah mishpat. The more expansive definition of those three words is that the mission of Judaism, the purpose of Judaism, is to extend the boundaries of righteousness and justice in the world. And in Abraham getting that mission charge from God, that is the starting point for the body of wisdom and practice that we call Judaism. It starts right there in Genesis 18. So that's the origin of the tzedek impulse as one of the two primary purposes of Judaism. What's the second? The second one I can root actually in four or five different verses. I'll choose one just for the sake of time. Leviticus chapter 19. This is right around the time that the Jewish people have accepted the Torah already. And Moses, as God's agent, says, Kiddoshim to you. You shall be a holy nation. It's one of the first times we're introduced to the word kadosh. Now, you, you know that root, K-D-S. We have the word kiddush there, right? Okay. The prayer over the wine. We have the word kaddish there, like as a mourner's kaddish, the same word. And we have the word, perhaps less known to you, kiddushah, which is holiness, all from the same root, kuf dalad shin. What does it mean to be a holy people? A holy people. And the translation that I prefer to holiness, because that's not a word we use in everyday speech. It kind of, it obfuscates. It doesn't clarify what does holiness mean. I like to define Kedusha as sacred apartness. Sacred apartness. Now here's a delicious irony and paradox about having a religion called Judaism, having two purposes that almost seem diametrically opposed. Because to a Effect justice in the world, tzedek, requires full engagement with the world, okay? My teens couldn't understand the lesson of what does it mean for a human being to be made in the image of God until they sat in the dirt, in the dust, next to a homeless person who had no place to put his or her head and to find and, and uncover the humanity of that homeless individual. That was the beginning of their learning about how do you advance justice because once you spend... 30 minutes for the homeless person, you walk away and say, like, I can't just go about my business. What am I going to do about this? Because there are maybe 1.5 million of these homeless people around the country, back in my home community where I'm from. i got to do something about it. So the beginning of justice is to engage with the world. Whereas holiness or sacred apartness means that we have a different way of being in the world than everyone else. Our way is different than everyone else. Our goal is not to simply blend in with everyone else. Our way is to have our own unique path, and that is what sacred apartness means. And it's almost diametrically opposed because to be sacred and apart means we're not engaging, we're pulling back a little bit. And I want to argue, make the case, that Judaism is about the integration 
of those two core mission statements, how you integrate justice and sacred apartness in the way we live. So I now want to take a few minutes to talk a little bit more about each of those concepts. I'll start with Tzedek. I once went to a speech by Elie Wiesel. I heard him speak probably a half dozen times in person, many more times like on a TV show or radio show, whatever, but about five or six times I saw him in person. And one time, for whatever reason, he's always been profound, tragic loss to our community. He lived a very full life. But there was something about being in his presence and hearing this teaching that just stayed with me until the present day. He says, there are two lessons that we as Jews need to draw from the Holocaust. One lesson is to say that we, the Jewish people, have enemies in the world. And left to their own devices, those enemies would do us in. They would destroy us. And us means the Jewish people, us means Israel, us means everything that is sacred to us. And what drives from that is that we are obligated, given the experience of the Holocaust, we are obligated to be vigilant, not to be Pollyannish about the world, to know that we have enemies and that we need to organize ourselves in such a way so that we can oppose and resist and defeat those enemies. And the second lesson that comes from the Holocaust is to learn that if the entirety of our program as Jews is to advance goal number one, to be vigilant and to fight against our enemies, we've lost the whole game. If all we do is play defense, be reactionary to those who hate us, to program our entire community about stopping the haters, we have lost our way. And he said the second lesson of coming out of the Shoah is that we have to, notwithstanding our experience with the Shoah, not, and not to mention all the centuries that came before that with all the mini Shoahs that happened to us for 2,000 years, is that we cannot get into a defensive crouch and simply be reactionary. We have to say, what are we for, not what we are against. And in that teaching, Wiesel showed why he was such a moral visionary for us. Because in my view, too much of the Jewish world has gotten into that reactionary crouch, like it's them against us. And so, as I taught just a few minutes earlier in, in the room before, you know, to say, like, it's, you know, how we defend ourselves, how we protect the Jewish community, how we protect Israel, and damn everyone else in the world. It's not our concern, not our problem. Wiesel saw that, clearly, because he saw how much the Holocaust was used politically by those who had an agenda of being just reactionaries. And by the way, people don't understand or realize this. Wiesel won the Nobel Peace Prize not because he wrote the book Night, not because of the fact that he probably more than anyone until Steven Spielberg did uh, uh, Schindler's List. Until that, probably no person in the world could be credited with raising consciousness about the Holocaust and its lessons more than Elie Wiesel, okay? He realized that so much of his teaching could be distorted in the wrong way. But Wiesel didn't win the Nobel Peace Prize in 1987 because he wrote the book Night or because he spoke as a survivor. It's because he started to realize late in his life that if all he did was tell the story of the Holocaust so that Jews became vigilant, that he had lost the bigger picture. Because he came to realize that as someone who was part of a victimized people, that there were other people also living in that circumstance. And so round about the late 1970s, Wiesel became a world humanitarian. 
He gave up some of the time he spent just talking to Jewish groups about the Holocaust, which Jews seem to want to hear about again and again for reasons that may be obvious. It's a compelling story. He says, no, no, no. I need to do something else. I need to show up anywhere in the world where there is some minority that is at risk, where there's a risk of intolerance, hatred, discrimination, persecution, or genocide, God forbid, and say, as someone who was at Auschwitz, as someone who witnessed the decimation of his people, of his family, I stand here as an ally, not of your kind, but of the Jewish people. I'm here to be your ally and to say, this cannot happen again. Wiesel's never again was not about never again against the Jewish people. Never again for Wiesel was never again for anybody. That's what made him a moral visionary, and that's what separated him out from many Jews. And Jews forget that lesson. That's why he won the Nobel Peace Prize. That kind of ability to be vigilant, but also to be broad-minded and universal in his desire to be an advocate for humanitarian behavior. I would argue that Wiesel was the 20th century manifestation of a famous Mishnah attributed to Rabbi Hillel, who taught in Ein Anili Mili, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? Which is that vigilance piece. We've got to protect ourselves. But the second part of the thing is, but if all I do is worry about self, me, my family, the Jewish team, what am I? What do I amount to? And the implicit answer of the Mishnah is nothing. A person who cares only about self, family, tribe is not fulfilling the mandate of Torah. That's what Hillel was teaching. And people use one part of that thing or the other to suit their own purposes, but it's both and, not either or. And by the way, when you happen upon a piece, a big piece of wisdom, it doesn't happen often. Once a lifetime, twice a lifetime, monthly, weekly, I don't know, it depends on what you're doing. I would suggest wisdom's all around us and we miss it all the time. But when you happen upon a big piece of wisdom, here's what you learn. Nobody owns it. If you're really onto a truth with a capital T, it's a truth that's universal. And here's my evidence for that statement. Because two people who share nothing Hillel and Martin Luther King, separated by a couple thousand years, different religion, different race, different historical context, said the same thing. One of Dr. King's most often repeated lines was, life's most persistent question is, what are you doing for others? I would argue that that statement by Dr. King is precisely the same as Hillel's if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? But if I'm only for myself, I'm nothing. Big truth is universal, always is. Nobody owns truth. The more you want to own it, the more you crush its wisdom out. Another piece of wisdom written in the Torah, as true today as it was when it was written, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8. The verse there says, when you have prospered, and your flocks multiply, and you grow wealthy, beware lest your heart get haughty. Beware of the life of privilege and affluence. That is the beginning of you losing sight of what Torah is all about. We should put it on the poster at every synagogue in the country. 
Because one of our problems today is that having risen from difficult circumstances, first in Europe and then even here as immigrants, goes only back two or three generations, we have prospered. But have we also allowed our heart to grow haughty? Are we as sensitive today to those who are in need as the Torah wants us to be? I would argue the answer is no. Torah and Torah, as alive today as it ever was. Shmuley mentioned that uh, I, I uh, was a founding rabbi of the synagogue in Bethesda. Uh, Joe and Ellen were members there for a while before they came to the land of the sun. Uh, and I'm, I'm really proud of what we've done at Adachalim because we've always tried to try and find a way to kind of make sure that people understood how important the balance was between justice and holiness, okay? Uh, just a few examples to get a sense. And I hope that a lot of you are associated with institutions uh, yourself that can kind of point to this. If not, maybe more of that should be happening. Okay? Um, we have a major project going on right now uh, with a Mishnah garden outside the doors of our social hall. Uh, essentially, it's a community garden. Uh, not only is it in a kind of environmental uh, living classroom where every week we've got both kids and adults working in the garden, but the produce of that garden, uh, about 10% feeds our weekly kiddish lunch and after Shabbat services, and 90% of it goes to a local soup kitchen, which our kids and teens take on a weekly basis to the soup kitchen. Okay? That's a piece of us walking the talk of prophetic Judaism. Right now, our community has adopted a refugee family from Afghanistan. There are about 80 families that have volunteered to, on a regular basis, help see to this family's success in integrating to America. Not a simple, not a simple project. One of our biggest projects is a project in Haiti. We adopted a school in Haiti soon after the earthquake in 2010. We go on annual service missions down there, and we are the primary support for the school, which began with 12 kids in a collapsed building from the earthquake, started by a young pastor named Johnny Felix. Today, that school has three buildings. We've helped build two out of the three buildings, funding it and building it with our own hands. And to see that today, there are 200 children in a school, K through six, who might have a shot at a future because of what we've done, is a way that our young people who come on these service missions understand that we don't just talk the talk, we try and walk the talk as well. Kedusha. So if that's kind of a little fleshing out what I mean by tzedek, let me flesh out Kedusha. This is a harder one, a harder one, so stay with me. We have been given, by our tradition, a unique set of ideas and practices and rituals that are supposed to elevate us, that's the holiness piece, but also serve to separate us from others. Now, for a lot of people, especially if you're of the liberal progressive bent, you say, well, why would we want to separate from others? What's, why is that necessary? And there's a lot of resistance, a lot of pushback to that kind of what's seen as a very parochial teaching. But every religion has it. Every religion comes with a package of particular practices, customs, ways of being in the world that makes them different than everyone else. It's one of the reasons why the Eagles and Patriots wore different uniforms last night. So you can tell who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. And it depends on who you're rooting for, right? Different teams. But professional sport uniforms are no different than rituals and religions, OK? Just ways of showing up in the world, OK? It's a, maybe a trite comparison, but it helps to understand that every religion has this package of particular customs. Now, embedded in that package that we've inherited and passed down through the generations are core value concepts 
which need to have, find a way to be embodied. Concepts like emet, truth. Concepts like shalom, peace. Concepts like telem Elohim, the belief that every human being is made in the image of God and what does it mean to live in that way. Concepts like samech bechalko, that wealth is relative. It's who is wealthy, the one who is happy with what they have. Okay, these are core concepts. And the question is, how do you take those concepts from like a sacred text and have someone internalized in the way they live? So I want to share with you a really quick little anecdote, again, from my Panim experience. Every year we would have a uh, benefit dinner in the spring, which was a, our big, big fundraiser. And we'd have two speakers. One would be kind of a high marquee value speaker people had heard of, written some books, been on the news. OK, that was supposed to bring people in. The second speaker was the winner of a competition that we ran called the Young Jewish Activist of the Year Award. We would invite young people who were through our program to send in portfolios about what they did with their Panim experience. What did they do in the world that manifested what we were trying to teach? And it was amazing, these young people at ages 15, 16, and 17 doing amazing things. And we had a committee of people who chose the best of the applications, and they essentially got a trip to Washington, they got a small cash award, and they got to speak at our dinner. By the way, year after year, however highfalutin the marquee speaker was, the student speaker stole the show, year after year. Tells you something about, it was real, very real. One year, the winner of the award was a young woman named Elizabeth Dwoskin, D-W-O-S-K-I-N. She came from West Palm Beach, Florida. I'm actually still in touch with Liz. Uh, I met her when she was in 11th grade, and she's now a very successful journalist uh, who writes for the Washington Post based in the Silicon Valley. Um, in her speech, she says the following. This is a paraphrase. She says, I came to Panim, but Panim did not teach me to be good. I'd already been significantly influenced by my parents, my family, my rabbi, my schools, my youth group, to tell me what it was to be good. I didn't have to come to a Panim program to learn what to be good. But what Panim gave me was a vocabulary, a language, and a story, the meta-story of the Jewish people, to which I could connect my small acts of justice in my small little part of the world to a story that goes back to Abraham and Sarah and runs through Mount Sinai and runs through our time in the desert, and runs through the development of the land of Israel, and runs through Jewish history. And to connect my story with that story gives me a sense that what I'm doing in the world is part of a much larger story. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. Whoa. Would that every student have that kind of insight? That that's what we're trying to do, give a larger context for the work we need to do in the world. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. The vast majority of Jews, I, I, I gave a sermon, I don't know if Joe and Ellen, if you were there then. Uh, I gave a sermon once on the high holidays that was called Why Jews Can't Pray. Jews are lousy prayers, really lousy. Present company excluded, of course. I'm sure you guys are all experts. But most Jews are really lousy at prayer. Okay? And one of the reasons is that Jews don't, just don't know how to access it. What, what are you supposed to do with these words? Why are we praising God? Why does it take so long? I don't understand the text, 
It feels redundant. It feels obtuse, whatever it's going to be, okay? But what happens if we take just a few of those words and put it into action? Let me give you some examples. And this is the kind of stuff we did in our program with, with teens. So you take a bunch of teens to a, to a homeless shelter. And they're there doing the work, and they, they do it eagerly, and they feel good about it. They feel good about themselves. They help people. They see how people react to what they're doing. And you raise up a line from the Amidah, which you said once in a while, maybe more than that, which says, God, We say in the Amidah, in the second paragraph, that God keeps faith with those who sleep in the dust. Now, I know Jews who have said that a thousand times, if not more. I have no clue what it means. Take any teenagers who want to a homeless shelter, they know exactly what it means. Okay? Find the people who are sleeping not in a bed, not in a feather bed, but in the dust. And how do you emulate God by essentially keeping faith with those who sleep in the dust, not those who are in a feather bed or in the, uh, in the penthouse suite? That's what it means. So a prayer is about, is not just to be recited, it's meant to be lived and embodied. Well, what about these days, young people are very involved, I talked about this this afternoon, uh, there's a lot of raised conscience about the environment, about going back to land. I, I told this morning people a story and some came over to me afterwards. Uh, I know six young people in their 20s who grew up in our synagogue whose career goal now is to become a farmer. You never would have guessed that 30 years ago. Okay? It's part of a whole phenomenon of moving back to Earth, of finding ways to live a sustainable lifestyle. Okay? Forget the corporate suite, forget law school, forget medical school. They want to be farmers, to till the Earth. So you get young people who are, understand how fragile our planet is and how we're poisoning it for future generations. We are. Okay? And you say to them that this work is actually also anticipated in our prayer book. Because in the Shachari service, we say, here again about God, but it's the principle that you need to pull away. Uh, that every day, God renews the work of creation. And here again, the lesson is, we are God's hands. How do we renew the act of creation? How do we, how do we become responsible stewards for, a, for planet Earth? I've done a lot of human rights work in my career. It's one of my most essential commitments for Jews and others. A lot of that work started with my work on behalf of Soviet Jews. I was an activist for over 25 years. Uh, but it's now extended to a lot of other things. I mentioned work I'm doing in Haiti. I've done a lot of work in the Middle East about human rights. A lot of young people care a lot about it. I ran a, a fellowship program for human rights uh, for young Jews in their 20s and 30s for several years. Open up a prayer book. Again, for most of the Jews who were my fellows in my, in my human rights fellowship program, they couldn't give a hoot what's in the prayer book. But I made him open up the prayer book on the first day of our fellowship program. I had him read a line from the morning benedictions where we say, praised are you, God, matir asurim, the one who releases the captives. I said, what do you think that prayer means? It's the core text about why we need to actually work for those people who actually are captive, we who have the privilege of freedom, which we take all too often for granted. I'm trying to make a connection here between these sacred, holy words that we can't access and we don't understand and some of us have no patience for and the fact that all of it sends a certain message, okay? It's no coincidence that the rabbis chose Isaiah chapter 58 to be the haftarah on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. Next Yom Kippur, make a note, note to self, okay? You can write it down, put it in your smartphone or put it in your head right now. 
Okay? Look at that chapter when the Haftarah is chanted, Hebrew or English, and say, why did the rabbis choose this chapter of all chapters to be recited on Yom Kippur? Essentially, it says, God says, like, I'm sick and tired of your fast days. Get over yourselves. You know, feel so self-righteous about fasting. Get over it. That's not what I'm asking of you. What am I asking of you? Here again, a, pas- uh, a paraphrase. This is the fast I desire, to share your bread with the hungry, to take the poor into your home. When you see the naked, to clothe him or her, not to ignore your own kin. Then do that. Do that kind of fast, not the no eating fast. Do that. And then your light will burst through the dawn. Then when you call out, God will answer you. And God will respond, Hineni. I'm here, I'm ready. Hineni is the code word in the Torah for a moment when either human beings or God is ready to do what has to be done. To do what has to be done. So that chapter is written to say, at the moment in the calendar year when we're feeling most righteous about, I fasted all day, I'm wearing white, I'm in shul for God knows how, how long? Too long, okay? So we're feeling very good about ourselves. We have this chapter from Isaiah that clobbers us over the head if we're paying attention and says, get over yourself here, guys. This isn't, the work's not here. This is only kind of the prep work. The, prep, the work is out there. Do the work out there and then come back and tell me how holy you are. That's the criteria for holiness. It's not this kind of you know, disembodied, woo, 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 woo. It's doing the work. I think you're well aware that we live in an age where not just in the Jewish community, but in the world in general, there's a general abandonment of religion. Uh, there was a conversation we had earlier today about those who are called spiritual but not religious. Most people, if you interview them, and there's a lot of documentation this now, look at religion, and see it as divisive, a dangerous combination of hocus-pocus, parochialism, intolerance, with a strong tendency towards fanaticism. I'm not even counting all the sexual and moral improprieties that we see happening by men of the cloth. There may be a few women among them, but not many, if any. Something about that, too, going on. And the reality is that we have in the world both good religion and bad religion. I think it's unfair to paint any phenomenon with a broad brush. I think we need to kind of be a bit critical about thinking about that. There is, in every religion, good religion and bad religion. The question is, can we tell the difference between the two? We need to avoid throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's all bad. But we also need to avoid the, the, the PR line from the people who are the custodians of religious institutions who make their living from being the holy men and women, and to say, maybe you need to clean up your act a little bit here, too. Most religions have elements of both good and bad religion. And it's a difference between righteousness and self-righteousness. Bad religion is triumphal. It believes it has the only corner of the market on truth. Bad religion places doctrine over people. It sees injustice as divinely ordained conditions. I can't tell you how many times I sat in rooms of clergy who would say that AIDS is a punishment of God for an evil lifestyle, for an immoral lifestyle. What's that about? Bad religion believes that the brokenness of the world is beyond the ability of human beings to affect. 
What does good religion look like? Believes that there are many equally valid paths to God, or whatever we mean by God. Ultimate truth, goodness, the messianic era. It puts a premium on acts of kindness and compassion. It believes that every human being is made in the image of God. It believes that we can and must repair a broken world. I want to read a short passage from my book, Judaism and Justice, where I write the following. Social justice is to religion what love is to a family. One is the institution. The other is a quality that makes the institution worthwhile. Just as a family without love is dysfunctional, so is a religion dysfunctional when it does not teach and manifest a deep commitment to social justice. It is a religion that has lost its way. So I want to suggest to you, in closing, that we need to find ways to manifest and integrate two principles that on the surface seem to be diametrically opposed, as I described in my remarks here. Tzedek, which requires engagement with the world, and Kedusha, sacred apartness, that requires us to maybe take our own way, to be different, to revel in our difference, understanding that it's not because we're different or better than others, but because we have our own way of interpreting and understanding our story about how we try and bring about a better world. And it's possible to do it. Because I want to remind everyone sitting in this room that we are the children of prophets named Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos. That our destiny is to live out the legacy of our ancestors who were prophets and to walk the talk of prophetic Judaism. And if you believe that's too tall an order for you, saying, he's got the wrong guy, he's got the wrong gal, I can't do that, then I would ask you simply to look around the room. Because we have each other. This is our collective task as Jews, as a Jewish community, as a Jewish people. And when you don't think it's possible, you've got to remember the last part of the quote from Hillel that I quoted at the beginning, I gave you two-thirds of the quote. The first part is, it may not nearly immediately, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? The second part is, if I'm only for myself, I amount to nothing, zilch, zero. And he ends it by saying, if not now, then when? Thank you. Please, tell me your name, if you don't mind. My name is Hannah Lang, and I have a question. I, I was familiar with the funding and funding, the funding program. Is that still going on, or is it pretty much? Uh, unfortunately, it's not. Uh, I left the organization in 2009. Uh, we merged our program with the BBYO, um, and it survived for about a couple years, and then it was not maintained. Unfortunately, not. Thank you. OK. For those of us who were not able to get the session this afternoon, you talk, talk about charting the, the course of, of Judaism in the future. Can you talk a little bit about, because you did a few studies, and they all seem to portray doom and gloom. Um, what, 
are young people doing? What's the bright side? Okay, well, that, that, uh, can you hear me from this or not? Good, okay. Uh, yeah, that was my entire afternoon talk. Uh, you got another hour, you know, give or take a few minutes? Uh, it's actually my book, Jewish Megatrends Tells the Story, uh, so I'll encourage you to pick that up. Uh, uh, I'll give you the, the short Cliff Notes version. Uh, what I argue is that I'm well aware of the Pew studies and those that came before it. Uh, and if you're only looking at a certain perspective on what it means to be a good Jew, uh, and the questions that would have been asked by Jewish sociologists for 50 plus years are pretty much the same. And I would argue they're the wrong questions. The way we've judged Jewish affiliation and Jewish uh, uh, vibrancy is asking questions like, are you a member of the synagogue? Do you give to federation? Have you been to Israel? Are you a member of two or more Jewish organizations? If you say yes to all four, you are a good Jew. If you say no to three out of four, you're a bad Jew. I'm oversimplifying, but for purpose, okay? And what I argue is that while a lot of the numbers from the legacy organizations out there, like synagogues, federations, JCCs, membership organizations, all have been in steep decline for 20 years now, okay, with rare exceptions, you can point in each of those sectors to a handful of institutions that are thriving and growing, but those are the exceptions that prove the rule. I argue that it'd be a mistake to conclude from those data that the Jewish community is on decline. I argue that it's in transition. And the work that I've been doing now for a while is to uncover the pockets of Jewish renaissance. Young people are creating their own version of Jewish identity with organizations that don't look anything like the synagogues or JCCs that we have out there today. Uh, they're creating more single-purpose boutique organizations in six different sectors, which we've explored and we're now working actively in. And those sectors are social justice, eco-sustainability, Jewish learning, independent spiritual communities that are not staffed by rabbis or cantors or buildings, uh, arts and culture, and spiritual practice. Each one of those sectors represent an ecosystem, not one, not two, not a dozen, but dozens of organizations spring up all over the country, started by young people with limited resources, great passion, not always a lot of know-how, okay? So a lot of them are at risk. A lot of them will be around for three years and disappear, and some may thrive and grow and be important. However, here's what's important. Here's the news. The millennial generation, and to some extent, Generation X and Y, who were just before them, who are not joining the legacy organizations, are joining these groups in droves. So if you want to know where the energy is, you've got to look at those organizations. And unfortunately, those organizations have been mostly off the radar screen of the organized Jewish community. The work that I'm doing is actually, we have a national effort now that's funded by some foundations to essentially identify, convene, and build capacity among the whole network of young Jewish social entrepreneurs who are reinventing what it means to be Jewish in America under our noses. Is there a risk that by institutionalizing them it will be counterproductive? Tell me why. Well, you know, um, anyone who's got an idea, you know, in the whole field of social entrepreneurship is something I've been involved in quite a bit myself, uh, having created several organizations. Every idea needs to have some kind of sustainable business plan, okay? If you just have an idea, 
It's an idea that you know, lives and dies with your dream. Okay? The question is, how do you manifest it in the world? Now, institutionalization is a dirty word, okay? And a lot of the young people who are in this creative mode struggle with that whole notion. Like, they'll say to me stuff like, you mean I have to go out and raise money? Like, yuck. That, that's yucky. I don't want to, I just want to like talk about big ideas. I said, okay, do you want to draw a salary from this work? Or are you going to do this as a volunteer for the next 25 years? Oh, no, I need to make a living from it. Well, then you better ask some people for some money. Or you got to come up with a business plan where some of what you do has enough value in the marketplace that people will pay you for services, okay? So a good, healthy organization has a good mix of revenue for services and foundation earmark grants and individual contributions. And now you're looking at a sustainable model. Now, if you call it institutionalization, okay, I'll say the dirty word. Yes, you need to do that. And we're actually helping to train a lot of these young people to actually get over the hump and get over their kind of their Pollyannish notion that somehow, like in the Bible, manna will drop down from heaven and like they'll get the paycheck, you know, falling out of the trees, okay? Say, no, there's some real work that has to happen here if you're gonna be sustainable. I don't, I, I don't consider that dirty work, I consider that holy work. And they get it pretty quickly. Is that responsive? Go ahead. Well, you know my answer to that. I answered that today. I mean, but for the presence of this audience, I was asked that question today. And yes, I am not of the view of like, let's just wipe away the entire legacy structure of the Jewish community and start all over again. I don't think we're better off that way. I think we're way worse off, okay? I'm working very hard to think about how we can form a uh, mutually beneficial partnership between these upstart social entrepreneurs who have a lot of passion and a lot of ability to access young people that are absenting themselves from the legacy institutions, and how to have them partner with these legacy institutions that is a win-win for both parties. I believe that's possible, and we're essentially exploring how to make that work. I, I thought it was important based on the conversation with David that the audience hears the other half. Thanks for the hanging curveball. <laughs> I hope I hit it out of the park. Uh, you got a question. Right here. Is there going to be a Jewish community, or are they each going to be working their own little part? And what happens to the next generation of these people? Are their children? You know, it, it's like um, if if you look at the his, history of the Jews in the United States, you know, when you go to the Bobby and Zadie, they were very Jewish, and it sort of diminished along the way. Well, this is another step in the diminishment of that because their kids probably won't be part of a Jewish community. Well, you're making an assumption there. That, that, that I, th I think the jury is out. I think you, you uh, are a little bit too quick to make a prediction here. What you say may happen, it is certainly a risk and a danger, which you fear and I fear. We share that concern, okay? Uh, but I wouldn't be as skeptical as you. I think I come out a little bit differently. My experience with these young people, and I spent a lot of time with them, is that they are, uh, first of all, 
Just because they're not with us or with you doesn't mean they're not forming community. I mean, the big mistake made by legacy organizations is that they feel every Jewish institution, whether it's a synagogue, a federation, they feel like we are the Jewish community. And if you're not here, you're not part of the Jewish community. No, no, no. They just chose not to be with you. They're with each other. And they're having a grand old time, okay? While we're worried to death about whether they're going to show up for the next generation, okay? So they are forming community in a very robust way, okay? What are their commitments? I will tell you. I mean, we've done a study of the group already. Uh, their views are very, very different from the mainstream views of the Jews who would essentially have built the legacy institutions. And it is going to create some major culture shock if they come in. If they come in. Okay? In other words, like, so on one level, you say, let them show up here. The question is, are you going to let them really show up? Or are you going to say, come here on our terms and be nice boys and girls, pay your dues, and keep quiet. On those terms, they're not showing up, okay? Because once you invite them in the room, they're only coming on one deal, and that is that they are full and equal partner, and their views are very different about a lot of things which will really rock your boat. I don't know what the Jewish community is ready for that, and I think part of why I'm walking very gingerly about building these partnerships, because I'm thinking long and hard about what it means for both parties to get into that kind of marriage. You know, there's a, there's a midrash about, it kind of says like, you know, uh, what has God done for us lately? You know, like, he did a great job the first six days, like created a whole world, and what's he done for us lately, right? There's like, so they say, like, well, part of the job is to make matches, you know, like to, you know, have people find each other, fall in love, and build households, whatever else. But it's treacherous work. The Midrash goes on to say that if it's not done with care, you put two people together that don't belong together, and what happens is that they start beating each other up. They don't want to be together. So putting two parties just in the same space together is not right away kind of, uh, you know, a match made in heaven. It could be a match headed for hell as well. So this kind of partnership that I think is important, uh, I think is possible, but needs to be done very carefully, where each party is respected. Um, and a lot of times, I mean, I've gone, you know, I, I do a lot of work with Jewish federations around the country, whatever else, and, you know, what I hear, I hear this deep desire, and it's coming from a good place, but it's, but it's, um, it's, It comes out wrong. Let me say this. I want to say this carefully. I did a program in, in a major Jewish community. I will not mention the name of the community, okay? But a major, one of the biggest communities in the country, I did a program and I had a pretty good representation of the board of that federation and talked about where young people are showing up, how to bring them in, whatever else. And then the president of that federation kind of said, you know, more or less, uh, you know, we make it really possible for them to show up at our programs and we subsidize their trips to Israel and whatever else, and don't they see all the good stuff we're doing? And essentially what he was saying, if you, if you kind of deconstructed what he said, he essentially said, why can't they just come along and sign on to our program? And I said as gently as I could, because it was coming from a place where he cares about Jewish continuity. The guy's devoted his time and a lot of his wealth to the project, so I, I respect him for that. But what he doesn't understand is that no, they're not coming in on your terms. They're coming in on their own terms, and there may be a coalescence of, of visions. If that could be done, it'd be interesting, but they have to have equal time, equal voice, equal votes 
about the direction. And I would argue that most of the stewards of major institutions are not so willing to relinquish their power base and their control to allow that to happen. So the very thing that they say they're most interested in, and that is capturing the next generation, they're not prepared to pay the price, because the price is that you've got to kind of give up some control to make it even possible. That's the reality. That's, that's the emphasis as I see it. Please. very religious, they proselytized, which I was never exposed to maybe because I was insulated. And I don't really have any Jewish friends here, but we're very good friends. And to me, being in that position has been really hard because I never had to face with that. So, you know, it's kind of a strange, yes, I believe in the precepts of Judaism and all of that, but it's made me think about a lot of things because I feel like I have to defend myself I mean, these people are always quoting the Bible, and they're always, you know, I had to tell them separation of church and state, this is not okay to do this at work, but yeah, it's been a real struggle. Mm. And can I ask you what community you came from? Atlanta. Atlanta, okay. And your name is? Phillips. Okay. So the first thing, homework assignment for this group, okay? A bunch of you people need to meet Phyllis when we break, over coffee, whatever else, okay? Because she's new to the community and she wants to connect, okay? I'm being serious here, really serious, okay? Because we can wring your hands all you want over the Pew study. I couldn't care less about your anxiety over that, okay? Take the time to reach out to people in your community and, and build relationships. That's how it starts, okay? That's how we built our synagogue, okay? So I'm being serious about that. That wasn't just a throwaway line. It wasn't meant to be in any way patronizing to Phyllis, okay? Just take, take it, you know, one of the things, I, I'm gonna take a tangent here, but it's important, okay? You ever hear of Synagogue 2000? It was a big project ran by Larry Hoffman and Ron Wilson. Then it became Synagogue 3000, not because they were around for 1,000 years, but because they felt 2000, once we hit the year 2000, seemed old school. So they became Synagogue 3000. Nonetheless, they did a lot of work trying to help synagogues be more relevant and more embracing and more engaging for people. You know what they spent most of their time doing? It wasn't like learn more Gemara, learn more Hebrew, go to Israel more often. Simply be nice to each other. That's rule number one. They never. They had like ten principles. They never got past number one, because you know what? They couldn't get synagogues to understand that unless you're nice to the people who enter your space, everything else is going to fail. Is that crazy? Like you don't. You don't. You don't need. You know, million dollar budgets. You know, and organizational consultants who are you know charging you you know uh, five hundred bucks an hour to tell you just be nice to people. And because I'm a student of the American synagogue, I wrote a book about it, I visited probably over 100, maybe 200 synagogues in the country, I can tell you by my own experience, okay, how many times I invest an hour, two, or three in a service, go to the kiddush, stand there, and wait for someone to say hello to me, and go home 45 minutes later without everyone having to say hello. I couldn't care less about how brilliant the rabbi's sermon was, how beautiful the cantor's voice was, how beautiful the space is. Nobody connected with me, I'm not coming back, okay? That's, that's just, that's my field work, okay? Right. I'm just saying. Right, so, so now. Christianity is so strong here. I, I mean, again, maybe because I'm not involved in the heritage, just 
Yes, and I want to address your question. So it's a fair question, and I've had the good fortune of living in, in three fairly strong communities. I grew up in New York, spent a large part of my rabbinical school career, and my first pulpit was in the Philadelphia area, and I've been in Washington now for about 30 years. Uh, in all places, I was in the bosom of a very vibrant Jewish community, didn't have that experience. I had an aunt and uncle who raised three boys in Waynesboro, Virginia, about an hour outside of Charlottesville, okay? Uh, my uncle worked for DuPont. Uh, there were three or four Jewish families, depending on the, on the year, uh, and the Hebrew school was in my uncle's basement. He taught every Jewish kid who came through, okay? That reality was so different than the reality I grew up in. That was more like maybe what you're experiencing here, okay? Where the society he lived in was heavily Christian, Bible Belt spirit was there, okay? And in the case of my aunt, my aunt and uncle, it served to strengthen their Jewish identity and their consciousness because they were respected the community, okay, but they didn't, they decided to consciously, they didn't want to blend in just to get along. They wanted to be respected for being different, okay. That takes a lot of courage and, and fortitude and backbone. Not everyone is equal to that. But I do think that there are, to the extent that I've traveled a good bit in parts of the country that are heavily Bible Belt and heavily Christian, okay, I think Christians actually have a deep respect for Jews and the Jewish people. And I think that that is the good news, okay? Uh, I mean, it sometimes can come across in a very narrow-minded way, okay, that kind of can shock the system if you're raised in a Jewish setting. But I don't think that Jewish life is, is done for, you know, outside of the, you know, 20 biggest Jewish communities in America. I don't think that's true. Uh, now, I haven't lived your reality, so you've got to navigate that every day, and I wish you luck at it. Right? But uh, in my experience, I think that it's, I mentioned this, uh, this data point this afternoon. There was a study done uh, only a few years ago uh, by two sociologists of American religion, and it's, the book is called American Grace. And to the surprise of many Jews, because we usually expect bad news, we don't know what to do with when good news comes, is that Jews turn out to be the most highly respected religion in America, among Americans. I'm not talking about among Jews, okay? So there's something going on there about there's something about our brand that is honored and respected by non-Jews, and I think that means something. Yeah, please in the back. And we'll go there next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, look, I think custom is very important. And here's some more good news, if you can take it. I, I know I'm giving you a lot of good news here. It's, like, hard to bear, <laughs> but a little more good news. Among the surprises of, like, where we're at in this, in 2018, uh, with things changing radically in the Jewish world, is that a lot of young people who may not have been raised with a very strong Jewish identity or strong exposure to, to a religious school or a synagogue or a bar by mess or whatever else, when they discover Judaism... They are totally uh, cool 
with being overt in their particularism about being Jewish. Like almost, it's like almost in your face, like yay team. Like I'll give you an example, which I think is hysterically funny. Maybe hopefully you'll find it funny. Uh, one of the alternative young person's magazines that popped up about eight, nine years ago was a magazine which was almost like a Jewish mad magazine. It was very funny, very irreverent about Jewish stuff, whatever else. The magazine was called Heeb, H-E-E-B. Now, growing up, a lot of you are old enough to remember that. Heeb was essentially the Jewish counterpart to nigger, excuse the expression, seriously. To call a Jew a Heeb was about as insulting an epithet as you could use, okay? And essentially, this team of young Jews who created this magazine said like, in your face, sucker, we're Heebs, okay? Do something about it. It's just this kind of, or, or I mean, here's something else. When I first read about it, I had a hard time with it, but I now put it in another perspective. There is a phenomenon now of young people, millennials, who are, you know, you know, body piercing and tattooing is now very big stuff. It's not my cup of tea, okay? But there are millennials now who are tattooing on their arm their grandparents' number from the Holocaust. The first time I read this, I had chills. I'm getting chills right now, actually, because I have a lot of family history with the Shoah, okay? And I, I, I first said to myself, how horrific, how horrific, okay? And I thought more and more about it, and I spoke to some people, young people who did it, and this was a way to honor a previous generation. I never in a million years would have ever come up with it, but this is their way to say, like, they're owning this piece of historical trauma that is part of our people and part of their family history, okay? So this, so for 100 years, in the first 100 years of Jews in America, the drill was, how can we be as unobtrusive as possible so we can blend in and be part of America, okay? It was all about Jewish light, blending in, don't stick, it, stick out, okay? And I would argue that what's happening now is a level of Jewish self-assertion and identity, which actually is refreshing and healthy because the next generation does not have the hang-ups of the previous generation, like, will the non-Jews accept us? Will they like us? Will they be friends with us? It's like, you know, you don't want to be friends with us? That's the attitude. And I think it's refreshing. Who are currently, I missed one word I missed. Who are carrying the torch. Carrying the torch, okay. Yeah. Organizations like Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And some of the Latino organizations. Um, we had an experience a number of years ago uh, when Arizona was passing uh, what we thought was a draconian law against, against uh, um, uh, immigrants uh, to have a, a session at the temple where we assumed that everybody would think that this is a horrible thing. Uh, and frankly, I was personally shocked that some of my Jewish colleagues or co-religionists didn't think it was a terrible thing, or from my point of view, not on the side of justice. Um, and when I grew up, um, I guess it's true growing up, <laughs> um, Judaism, the Jewish people, one of the things I was most proud of was the Jewish people were clearly aligned with the civil rights movement. And all progressive movements mm -hmm. were, we were there. 
as a community. Do you think there's a problem there in terms of how we relate to other social justice organizations? And if so, what can we do about it? Yeah, it's a great question, great question. So the short answer is yes, and now I'll yes, we do have a problem, okay? Part of it is like I made the reference earlier to that chapter from Deuteronomy chapter 8, okay? Part of it is with our growing affluence, okay? There are many Jews who actually now identify their slash our self-interest with a more conservative political bent, okay? Uh, now, Jewish commitment to progressive politics actually outlasted our immigrant underclass status for longer than most groups did for a long time. And by the way, even now, Jews defy the typical curve of what happens because there is a correlation between income level and wealth and political attitudes, okay? And it correlates, as you might expect, the wealthier people are, the more conservative their views are, and the less wealthy people are, the more they tend to be progressive, and it makes sense. If you have less, you believe in more equal sharing you know, across the board. And if you are wealthier, you say, why should people who didn't work as hard as I did work benefit from my tax dollar? You know, I deserve to be wealthy, and you have the whole trickle-down economics kind of thing. Let me get wealthier and wealthier, and they'll benefit by, being, by emptying my, my trash cans at 1 a.m. in the morning when I'm sleeping at home. Um, for several generations, and even till today, we still defy the curve, okay, uh, where Jews are still voting, and, and voting and attitude surveys suggest that we are significantly more progressive than would be suggested by our socioeconomic status. That is true. And yet, there is, uh, there is attrition to that, okay? And Jews, I think what's going on is, for a while, and by the way, the numbers have been pretty consistent, even to, through the last election, by the way, uh, where Jews are voting somewhere between 75% to 80% Democratic. Uh, so the Republican vote is somewhere between 20 to 25%, right? What's happening is, while those numbers have not shifted a lot over the past 20 years, the people in that minority, in the 20 to 25%, are becoming more uh, assertive, okay? They're no longer shy or embarrassed. And, and by the way, they're very much emboldened by the current president. Uh, you know, that kind of in-your-face attitude, say whatever you want, you know, that is, I think, emboldening people who've got attitudes that in previous years or previous generations were considered to be not to be shared in, in polite company, right? I mean, just anything, anything goes. So that's happening. Um, and there's also a clear uh, correlation between religious uh, practice and politics. So, for example... In the Orthodox community, that community voted majority for Trump, okay? Whereas if you take the non-Orthodox community, they voted overwhelmingly for Clinton, okay? So it correlates that way as well. And one of the fissures, one of the dividing lines on this issue happens to be on Israel. And part of what is awkward right now for the Jewish community is, to the extent you care about Israel, what do you do with the fact that there's like this bromance between Bibi Netanyahu and Donald Trump? Like, you know, Trump was, uh, Netanyahu was uh, overt in a way that was hard to imagine uh, against Obama. I mean, the fact that he visited Washington and didn't end around the White House to speak in the Congress without the permission of the White House would have been unheard of. You had never, no ally of the U.S. would have ever dared to do that. 
And it just showed the level, you know, Bibi felt that he had enough support in the American Jewish community to essentially do that and get away with it, okay? And now he's on a reverse field by saying Trump is the best thing that's ever happened for Israel. So Jews now, to the extent that the Jewish community has in many ways, I would say not to our benefit, but others would disagree with me, have made loyalty to Israel as a, uh, as a litmus test of whether you're a good Jew or not, okay? It's very confusing times now because people would argue that what Trump has done is as overtly pro-Israel as has ever happened. People on the other side of the spectrum would say, frankly, uh, the fact that the U.S. has in the last year surrendered overtly its role as an honest broker in the region where both Arab nations and Israel can trust the U.S. to be fair-minded in trying to bring about a peace settlement is disastrous for long-term peace. That throwing all of our eggs into the Israel basket is actually the worst thing for Israel's future, not the best thing. And this is the difference between short-term interests and long-term interests. Okay? And by the way, history is replete with stories where people and nations that prioritize short-term interests over long-term interests disappear. And we are seeing that happening in front of our eyes right now. As a matter of fact, it's part of the, we have enemies, but what are we? And this is kind of the, the you know, going with Trump mm -hmm. against everything else is where we are sort of hunkering down to protect Israel, as we think, at least the right. conservative view is, without looking at the long-term yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, let me say one more, one more about Israel because I think most people don't know this. But do people know who Dan Kurtzer is? K-U-R-T-Z-E-R. Dan Kurtzer is, uh, was a member of the Dipl diplomatic corps. He was ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Egypt, first ambassador to install a kosher kitchen in the U.S. embassy in Cairo, and then he became the U.S. ambassador to Israel, okay? He's you know, kind of a senior statesman in the U.S. diplomatic corps, and Orthodox Jew, by the way, Orthodox Jew, observant. He wrote a very important book about uh, 40 years of the U.S.-Israel alliance. And the, you can save your time reading the book, because you probably won't, most of you. But his conclusion is that the only time that there was progress towards peace is when the U.S. played this honest broker role and pushed Israel to do things that Israel was not prepared to do on its own. And when you saw, when you had blitz of this uh, on the screen of some progress is because the U.S. played the honest broker role. And it's a book that, by the way, uh, I don't want to offend anyone here. I'm just telling you what, what Kirchner's analysis was. It is a not-so-indirect slap at AIPAC because the AIPAC rule's thumb is what Israel wants, Israel should get, okay? And Kirchner argues that actually U.S. administrations that essentially uh, jump to every whim and wish of the Israeli government has not helped the peace process, and that's from a historical point of view. When you're in the moment, it's hard to make that judgment, okay? The Iran deal is a great example, okay? The Iran deal is a great example. There are people, the people who are most hawkish on Israel align themselves with Bibi and with AIPAC to oppose the Iran deal. Others argued that actually the deal that Obama pushed through for Iran actually took Iran off of the table as a nuclear player for the next 50 years and that was advancing the prospects of peace in the region and in the world. Now, you know, choose your poison here, okay? It's short-term interests versus long-term interests. That debate goes on all the time. And I left my crystal ball at home. Yeah, Joe's got the last question. Okay, so I came to 
both of your things, so I'm trying to synthesize the message of both of your speeches. Okay. Your, your teaching. So tonight, the subtext I get was you wouldn't give Jews slash Judaism today in America a very high grade in terms of its commitment to social justice. On the other hand, this afternoon you were really saying, I think, and I, I liked it, <laughs> that you are optimistic. You're more hopeful that the younger generation is embracing social justice however they wish to define it. Mm -hmm. You know, they're walking. They're walking the walk. Mm -hmm. Is that a, is that a fair? Yeah, I think uh, you, I think you got that right. Speaking? Yes, uh, I would say that that we uh, the Jewish community uh, pats itself on on its own back overly much around our commitment to social justice. I think our our activism days are behind us as an organized community, and I think part of the estrangement of the next generation from the mainstream community is because they don't see the community actually walking the talk, okay? Um, I mean, one, one example of that is this past year, there was a major uh, civil rights march in Washington, and it was called for the day of Yom Kippur. There was a big debate, at least in where I live, because I live in the Washington area, about like, where are we supposed to be on that day, right? Are we supposed to like, be in shul on Yom Kippur, which is where I was inclined to be, or are we actually fulfilling our mandate as good Jews to actually be at the rally? Now, I didn't weigh in on that one way or the other. I don't think whoever made the choice made the choice, okay? But here's what I take from the, 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 the outcome. 15, 20 years ago, that never would have happened because Jews were so heavily involved in the leadership of the civil rights movement, when they started planning the rally, they would say, Yom Kippur, no, no, no. Bad choice. You don't want to do that because we want to be there with you, okay? But now there are no Jews in that leadership cadre anymore, the civil rights movement. And, and part of it is why is that? Because the leadership of that movement were the same people who were in the leadership of the Women's March the day after the election, right? Which was amazing, like a, one and a half million people in Washington. It was like amazing, okay? Same people, a lot of the leadership from groups like Black Lives Matter. Now, what's going on there? Black Lives Matter put out a 60 point protocol, you know? Two or three of those points are like, do not play out Israel very well or very pro-Palestinian. And so the Jewish community said, trafe, trafe, can't hang out with trafe people, okay? They, they are trafe on two or three of their positions. Now, do I like the Black Lives Matter position on the Middle East? No, I think it's wrong-headed. Uh, but what, what are the trade-offs here? It's a difficult situation. You know, we have used, the Jewish community has used position on Israel as a litmus test for a long time. And that, too, is yet another thing that's pushing a lot of young people away. I'll, I'll say something here. If I haven't offended you yet, I'll try and offend you now before you leave. Uh, you'll know about BDS, right? Boycott, divestment, sanctions. This has like been a big boogeyman in the Jewish world. Now, I am as opposed to boycott, divestment, sanctions as anyone can be on the planet, OK? And yet, I think the Jewish community has totally misplayed its hand on this because they don't understand the next generation. What we've done is essentially the organized community has said any Jew who is affiliated with boycott divestment, okay, is essentially a bad Jew and they, they can't be in our room, they can't join our organizations or whatever else, okay? And the fact of the matter is tell a young person that a certain position is out of bounds and right away you validate it. Not only that, you give it more cachet, okay? 
And the, the, the objection is not over whether BDS is a wise strategy or an unwise strategy. It's about like, why are we playing Gene McCarthy, uh, Joe McCarthy here? Why are we playing Joe McCarthy, right? Why are we, like, why are we on this witch hunt about people who have, who have the wrong ideas about how to advance peace in the Middle East? So I think that you know, this drawing of boundaries and drawing of lines, the litmus test, loyalty test, which by the way is happening in Israel too. We had a loyalty oath, like Avigdor Lieberman, who's the foreign minister, you know, saying like Israeli Arab citizens now have to pledge a loyalty oath to Israel if they want to actually be able to vote. Like, what's that about? I mean, they've been citizens since the founding of the state, and suddenly they've got to salute the Zionist flag to, to vote. I mean, th there's a whole phenomenon happening here, you know, right on our watch, which is, I think, out of control and undermining some important democratic principles that I, I still care about and I hope you do as well. Anyway, thank you for your attention this evening. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.